Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dr. Emmett Emery Sr. You better stand your watch. Leaders Leadership Podcast. First, before we get started, I'd like to uh, give an honor to God, of course. Um, without him, uh, nothing happens in my life. And I'm sure you, my audience, probably thinking the same as well. Um, secondly, I'd like to say happy anniversary to my wife, Yosemi. Uh, this is our one-month anniversary. Yes, I don't know if I'm still a newlywed or not. I've been married for a month. Um, but I'll say uh, uh, happy anniversary, sweetheart. Love you with all my heart. Okay, today we're going to be talking uh, with a guest. And my guest's name is Dr. Randy, uh, Andy Rojas. Dr. Andy Rojas is a professor at the University of uh, St. Pete College. Not university, but of St. Pete College. Um, I'm promoting him right here on the set. Uh, I, I guess that's a good thing. Um, we're going to talk about leadership in a unique form um, that's never been talked about before. We're going to talk about leadership from a college professor perspective involving college students. Usually when you hear uh, someone talk about leadership, they talk about leadership from either the supply chain management field or from an office uh, perspective or from uh, a workplace that deals with individual who's on a payroll, not from a perspective where the only individual on payroll is that professor. And the only way he can communicate with them is through two methods, face-to-face and teaching and lecture and online. So it's, it's, I'm very uh, eager to hear um, a certain leadership method or technique uh, that's used in a professional setting. And one of the techniques uh, that I'm going to talk today with Dr. Andy about, and he could elaborate upon, is ethical leadership. Ethical leadership, from my perspective, I don't know about his perspective, he'll get a chance to speak up on it, from the academia educational uh, uh, arena, is very important uh, in dealing with uh, college students because it's different than dealing with individuals than I deal with in the workforce. I'm dealing with pretty much um, 19, 20, 21 year olds, 30, 40, even 50, 60 year olds. What he's primarily dealing with some of the kids straight out of high school. So he has used a different approach uh, and have different different sort of successful methods than I use. So um, I'm gonna give him a chance to speak, welcome. Dr. Andy Rojas. <laughs> uh, you know, this is a fascinating topic. I, I love it. And um, it's, it's not only, you know, covered, I think, the, the spectrum of, of uh, ethics, you know, the classroom, but really when we talk about ethics and leadership, it's multiple aspects. You know, it's the, we're dealing with uh, uh, ethics, you know, and in the industry, ethics at the workplace, personal ethics, you know, so... I like to take it, you know, from 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 this approach, kind of like uh, peeling the onion, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, let let me begin by just uh, uh, telling you, you know, the uh, I think as educators we have a platform uh, that becomes, you know, the, uh, the the place where we influence. So when we talk about leadership, you know, my definition of leadership is, you know, the ability to influence others. 
and to you know convey a vision and a mission and bring those others you know to accomplish that goal whatever that may be right that's that's leadership so as educators and you know, professors for universities or colleges we use the classroom whether it's on ground or online to influence that you know whatever um, call it our you know recipe maybe right uh, or mission vision in the different topics um, so to to begin you know this this fascinating topic and, and, and ethics I think there's this is the perfect time to talk about it uh, because you know I have seen a transformation over the last 30 years in uh, some of the core values you know that are um, that influence individuals uh, professionally personally and um, you know as a nation right so I think there's a need to to have a discussion about it and so let's begin the discussion with you know some of the uh, uh, principles of you know ethics what what it is right so the, the first thing that I have to tell you is ethics it's kind of like a, you take a diamond right and you put it up you know in front of the sunlight and you, you're looking at a diamond right it's going to give you multiple shades multiple colors you know depends even you know whether it's uh, seven in the morning or five p.m. right so ethics becomes you know a multifaceted interpretation of your own values your own beliefs and the influences that you have from various cultures and, and upbringing the question that we must answer as we talk about ethics and, and what we call the moral compass is how do we bring all these differences in what you believe that is right, what you believe that is morally correct versus what another person believes is not? But how do you bring all that to fruition and um, have an impact on the students? Because a statement... And, and before you answer that question, listen to the statement that you put this together. It's that university professors have a moral obligation to be ethical leaders in guiding their students. I agree with the fact that, yes, we, we have a moral obligation. However, I think we have an obligation to look at ethics not only from the local perspective and from the global perspective, Perspective. I'll give an example, and the, the, this, is, this is the kind of conversations that we have, you know, um, in the classrooms. Somehow, for us here um, in the U.S., right, in, and we, this is part of our values, our moral compass. We believe that child labor could be abusive. If I tell you that, you know, a nine-year-old is working in Pakistan uh, at a factory. You know uh, that doesn't have you know good working conditions. So perhaps you know it's working just to supply you know money to for for you know for the family, right? We perceive that as something that you know it would be a violation of the ethics code and HR policies and all that. Human resources will be all over. And there have been multiple cases where we have critiqued our what we call our values, our value system as Americans that we perceive that to be wrong. But there's a famous case, and I think you may you may have heard about it because I know you, you come from a background in working in retail. Um, there's a famous case that when Walmart 
we talk about ethics, right? Went to Germany and uh, they failed after a few years of being there. And one of the points of failure has to do with what they would consider uh, ethically correct to give employment to grandpa and to grandma. So here, when we walk into a Sam's Club and Walmart, you know, we see an older person. It has to do with something that we call equal employment opportunity. Fantastic. You know, grandpa is working. Uh, he's 75 or you know, 80 years old. We respect that. We value that. That's not the case in Germany. The Germans saw Walmart as an American institution based on values of profit and profits and responsibilities to the shareholders, not to grandpa, not to grandma. Let's create value for the shareholders, correct? And part of the failure was that the German system is designed for you not to have to work when you are retired. And Walmart said, wait a minute, you know, we're going to offer you minimum wage, we're going to get grandpa and grandma you know, and, and put him to work eight hours standing. They may have arthritis, right? They may, yes. they may not feeling good, right? So when you look at ethics, and we talk about these two, what we, they consider that, and an ethical practice is, some, you know, actually was labeled as predatory recruitment. How dare the Americans go there and bring grandpa and grandma? You know, so this topic of ethics, when, yes, we have a responsibility to, to talk about it, to, you know, determine what is a moral compass. Is your moral compass right? Is it wrong? Right? So these are two similar cases where we're looking at two totally opposite age brackets, somebody who's nine years old working, right, to support their family, uh, that in their value system, in their moral code, right, they see nothing wrong with it. Well, I want you to get dig deep into your profession, Okay. There's a college student out there listening to this podcast, and they want to know, how do my professor integrate ethical leadership into his criteria, rubric, rubric what do you call it, rubric, rubric, something like that? The, the rubrics, yeah. Rubric yeah, yeah. Uh, criteria yeah. to assist me in succeeding academically. For that student that's out there, how is ethical leadership used by you to assist that student in succeeding in the classroom or online? Um, speaking of me, me personally, right, uh, and the students gain when they, um, they're part of my teachings, where they're part of my classroom, and that element is the uh, delivery of trust. In fact... You know, I um, spent about three years researching about trust. That was one of the topics that I became passionate. Actually, more than passionate, Dr. Emery. I became obsessed with it. <laughs> I became absolutely obsessed with trust. I went in multiple industries. I went to research back to the 1950s and to understand what is it that makes individuals trust others? Why, what, is it, what, what is this thing called trust? What is it that we trust about trust? And how can I bring trust one day to the classroom? So we talk about this you know, uh, ability to, for, for the students to succeed, right? So, and I, so let me uh, talk to you about the three pillars of trust and how that is part of my teaching philosophy and what I uh, provide to the students to gain and to reflect about so they can go and practice it. One thing is, you know, to, you know, teach it. 
and then to you know, semester as well, I learned something, but can I practice this on Monday? Yes. Let's talk about it, right? Yes. Can I practice this at home with my significant other? Can I practice this you know, with the people that I love? And can I practice this at work? So let's talk about it. Ready? Here we go. So trust, you know, it, it is similar to ethics, but it is, I would say, it's, a, it's, a, it's even more comprehensive because it involves three pillars that we, as human beings, you know, in our conscious or unconsciously, we are always operating under these three pillars. And I have to give you a little bit of mystery before I tell you what it is, right? So we, everyone, any person, whether you're five years old, 70 years old, or, or 40 years old, you operate under these three pillars. But somehow, you know, either we deviate from those pillars or we build on those pillars. So let me tell you about the first pillar of trust. Conclusion, my research. What is it that builds trust? What is it that also, I call it the points where trust starts deteriorating, where trust starts to crack? The first one is called ability. And ability has to do with the training, with the knowledge, with the expertise that you gain in a subject, in something that you do, right? And when you are in the classroom or when you are in a relationship with others or when you need something for another person, you become vulnerable. So how do you get that student to trust you? So that, so that ability, right, is providing information. Good. I tell them something, right, that they didn't know about. You know what? Uh, somehow this Professor Rojas, he knows about this stuff, right? And I'm consciously, you know, there's something that triggers, you know, in our neural system that says, you know what? I'm listening to this person. He's providing an idea. He's providing some knowledge that I didn't know about, right? So somehow that pillar called ability starts building up. Let's go to the next. Okay. The next pillar is called benevolence. And benevolence, it's a pillar that builds trust because it is the act of taking an interest in others above your own interest. It is the I care about you. It is the phone call. Let me give you an example of benevolence, right? Of care, you know, how that builds trust. It's the phone call that years ago I received from my son's um, doctor, um, pediatric neurologist. Four weeks after we visited him, he gave me a call, which you never hear from doctors here, you know that, right? right? Unless they bill you. <laughs> and he said, how's your son doing? Have you been practicing the things that we told you? Have you been noticing this? Have you seen improvements? That phone call to me has those two components, right? First, the guy, he knows what he's talking about, right? He has the information. He's a very smart guy. He has, he has the ability to the skills. And second, he's demonstrating to me that he cares. Now, in the classroom, it is the relationship that I build with the students, that you care about the academic progress, that you care about their, succe- you know, their success, and taking a personal interest in each of those students to, you know, uh, to help them achieve the goal that they want to achieve. That's, as an educator, right? So that's the second pillar, benevolence. I know if you, they feel, you if they feel that you care, they start caring about you. I know you mentioned trust as yes. um, one of your attributes. Let me read this for you real quick. It said the National Association of Secondary School of Principals, Code of Ethical Conduct for School Leaders. 
They state education leaders must be committed to helping every student succeed by acting with integrity, fairness, and in an ethical manner. Now, how do you tie your trust into that ethical leadership style that the National Association of Secondary School of Principals is stating? They should have called me, by the way. <laughs> I could have, you know, I could have put all this together in, in, in you know, my three years of research in, in two minutes, right? There's a key word that you mentioned there, Dr. Emery. Integrity. That's pillar number three. So let's recap, right? Ability, show me that you know. But in order to gain that knowledge, right, you have to train. You have to research. You have to, you know, it's kind of like the, the mechanic, right? That has to range, that has to fix the engine multiple times before, you know, he says, you know what, I know how to do this. We do the same thing with the information that we transfer in the classroom, right? Second one, benevolence. And then going back to your question, the third pillar of trust is called integrity. Three pillars, integrity. So it is the moral compass. It is the conversations that we talk about right and wrong. It's the conversations that we talk about. There's no black and white, but there's something called a value system. And a famous pope, you know, Pope. Um, uh, it's a lot of them out John, there. Yeah, a pope. Let me. This is going back to the 1980s. Okay. <laughs> I, I remember his name in Spanish. So Juan Pablo II, right? <laughs> he he talked about this moral compass, you know, in in, in in faith, right? And he says, you know, you have a good ethical code and a good moral compass when you know that the person on the other side feels that they can reciprocate in the same way. If you do good to others, they will do good to you. I agree I with think, that. I think that's one of the most profound I agree uh, principles. So when we talk about integrity, the second, you know, the third pillar of trust, I use that principle in the, in the classroom um, for students that on Monday, they go to work and they deal with situations, you know, that uh, could present a um, dilemma Am I going to do the right, the wrong thing? And the question is, how would that person reciprocate to you? So those are the three pillars of trust. Thank you, Dr. Andy. And so if you have to look at the, the theories of ethical leadership, and I will state it, and then you can give me your feedback on it after I state each one. I'm only going to mention four of them. I know there's a lot of theories out there. I'm digging deeper. <laughs> The first one is transformational leadership theory in which leaders and followers build each other up and focus on the common good over individual interests. How does it relate to you as a professor integrating or communicating with your students over what is a six week course, eight week course? And are you a transformational leader? So I'll, I'll answer that question in, in, in different parts. Um, I'll, I'll begin with the last question. Am I a transformation leader? I aspire to be a transformation leader. But it is one of those, uh, to me, it is not a destination. It is a journey, if I may say, to be a transformation leader. Because there's no such a thing like, hey, I'm, I made it. I'm considered a transformation leader. I think the transformation leaders are always evolving. Uh, they're always growing. And um, there are very, very few, um, in my opinion, very few individuals that have achieved that level of continuity, right, of, 
of transformation leadership. Uh, here's an example that comes to mind. Last year, I saw a job opening. And for the school district, one of the worst school districts performing in, around the New York City area. And the job description, it had every single element that a transformational leader needs. And it's, as a matter of fact, it says at the bottom right of that job opening, seeking transformational leader. No less than that. <laughs> right? So, um, so yes, I am, uh, I think as a professional, as an educator, that is, you know, one of the uh, goals that I always strive, you know, to, to, to get to that level to be a transformational leader. How do I practice that in the classroom? You know, the different topics, the different di discipline, disciplines that I teach. In, I teach international business, uh, leadership, uh, strategic management, management courses, you know, to, to build leaders. So the, the transformational leadership, I think it, it begins with um, understanding individuals and people. Because to be a transformational person, it is not about yourself that you're transforming is about how you are transforming those around you. See what I'm saying? Yes. You would evolve because of the circumstances. You would evolve because of the impact that you made on your people. But if you, a transformational leader, is, I call it, it's, it's a role, it's a title that they give you, but it's uh, it, the actual delivery of that is the impact that you can make on those, the significant impact. So one way that you start with that is influence individuals. You influence them, you know, with knowledge. You ask difficult questions to talk about it, to gain perspective. You know, we we can discuss, you know, difficult topics that has to do, for example, with the, with you know, democracy. Is it right? Is it wrong? Right? We can deal with the, you know different topics. Um, here's you know that uh, we that influence our decision-making process? Is it, uh, you know, topics that have to do with morals and, and, and legal matters? And those are difficult conversations that we have in the classroom. And I tell the students, you know, the, the, here, here's the first, call it, uh, policy of the classroom. The teacher is not right. <laughs> the professor is not right. And it's okay to agree to disagree. We want to have an open forum you know, of ideas, an open forum of opinions. But to practice this thing, again, going back to transformational leadership, is the influence of others to not just take the information as it comes or to have an opinion because, you know, I just saw it on the internet. I just saw it on, you know, this is the last thing that I saw on TikTok. We're talking about a new generation, right? So TikTok somehow <laughs> becomes a feeder of information and influence, and the students bring that to the classroom. They bring those ideas, they bring the you know, opinions, and as an influencer in the classroom, I challenge that. I have to play devil's advocate and say, tell me why, and tell me why do you think this? Is this correct? Is there anybody here in the classroom that would actually raise their hand and say, I don't think this is correct? So all of a sudden, you create this momentum, right, of inquiry. You start questioning things. No, with the idea of 
pointing fingers at who's wrong, who's right. But when you inquire, when you engage in difficult conversations, it gains the perspective. Well, Dr. Andy, I'm still stuck on the, the fact that you said you let the students know that the professors is, is not right. Now, as director of operation uh, for the job that I work at, um, um, Southeastern Food Supply in Tampa, Florida, if I stood up in front of my workers and told them that, that they always, I'm never right, they always right and I'm wrong, I'll be out of job, my brother. <laughs> well, here's, I'm, I'm, I'm. <laughs> my second thing, question is, you live in, in Florida. Why are you looking at openings in New York for transformational, <laughs> transformational leaders? <laughs> Interesting. Good, good question. And Actually, tell my audience what classes you're teaching. Yeah. The courses. So the, the job opening wasn't for me. It, I wanted to, um, I went searching, you know, online, looking for uh, specific jobs so I can discuss that in the classroom. Okay. You know, so, yeah, and, and let me tell you, it was very difficult. And I, I did remember that one that I found. So we could look at the characteristic, you know, the specific traits and the skills, the, the type of, you know, elements that an employer looks for a transformation leader. And mm-hmm. we had a whole 45 minutes conversation about it with the students. Wow. They said, this is, this is a job that pays significant amount, you know, it's, and, and is looking to change a school district. I don't remember how many, you know, but probably more than 100 you know, schools. Wow. So this one individual, whoever they hired, you know, I'm, I'm sure they have somebody now, had those qualifications. Right. right. So uh, second question, what do I teach? So I have, uh, let me just, I've been teaching now for almost nine years. So I teach in the, uh, in the areas of management or within management. I am uh, one of my, you know, preferred disciplines is organizational behavior has to do with um, elements of organizational culture. Here's a funny, fascinating fact. Companies that have a good, positive culture, you know, research indicates it increases the bottom line, profitability. Right. But if that is as a result of something that happens. High employee morale, high employee retention, and high productivity. Right. Because good culture. So that's, I teach organizational behavior, I teach strategic, strategic management. That's more of a, call it a very methodical course. Uh, at the MBA level, I have also taught at the uh, doctor level, uh, research methods, um, international business, global management, managing cultural diversity. I love that too. Uh, in fact, I'm doing a collaboration right now with two universities. So my students are being exposed to global thinkers. Uh, once a month, we do a collaboration with Kansai University in Japan and with uh, University of Sergio Arboleda in Colombia. So imagine students here in St. Pete in Tampa that some of them have never left Pinellas County, Hillsborough County, mm-hmm. right? Right. Because of, you know, um, socioeconomics. But yet they are great thinkers. And same scenario happens in Japan. Students in Japan that have never, never interacted with an American person, that the only perspective that they have about America is the last movie they watched, which is not, you know, Americans, we're not just Hollywood. That's difficult for me to understand because I'm a military veteran of 14 years, and I was in Yokosuka, Japan, for six months. We have a military base 
Okinawa, Japan, we have Air Force Base, we have Army Base in Japan. We, we have half the territory of Japan is military bases. And I was also stationed in Guam. So they must have been, they must be in, in areas that don't get out uh, towards the uh, regions that the military bases are. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Well, you have to consider also that, I mean, Japan is very big, you know, I mean, as, 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 a, as a nation. And some of the students, uh, you know, unless you're nearby a base, you know, uh, or you have somehow friends that are Americans or, you know, a friend of a friend, they don't really have exposure to interact with the American culture mm-hmm. and to learn about our thinking, to learn about our ideas. Uh, I presented a topic just last week. It was fascinating debate. Artificial intelligence. Oh, yeah. That's Look, that's, we're not going to get off subject <laughs> here, but, but you know, that's the, that's the kind of conversations, global conversations that we have, just like we have conversations about, about ethics, global conversations. So I introduced those, you know, I call it global issues that are important globally, but you can act locally. You don't have to, you know, fly overseas to make an impact, but you can gain the perspective from global individuals and bring it home. Bring it home to your zip code and get to practice it Monday morning. And what's the length of those courses? Eight weeks? Six weeks? Uh, eight weeks. Yeah. Eight weeks. And they're yeah. usually online? Yeah, online. Okay. You know, we do Zoom and some online, some on ground, so... Okay, this second theory of ethical leadership is I, I, home, I hold this next one close uh, to me because I lived it for 14 and a half years. That servant leadership theory. Ooh, yeah, we're, we're going to get deeper here. <laughs> oh, I'm already thinking of some names. In which, in which leaders attend to the needs of their followers by nurturing, defending, and empowering them. Where do you stand on that as far as your um, classroom teaching skills and that student who's trying to learn from the knowledge, from the criteria, from, re- from the material that you give them? I know that this is, this is one of your passions. I'm going to tell you that, you know, and uh, we, we have had some interesting breakfast discussions about it, right? You, you and I. <laughs> I know. So here's, here's a name that comes to mind. You know, as and we've had these discussions in the classroom in, in, in some way or sh- you know, shape or form in one of the topics that we cover in one of the weeks. Uh, Nelson Mandela. Yes. Comes to mind. Uh, Nelson Mandela was defined as one of the best leaders ever in history, undoubtedly, right? Unquestionably. Uh, but one of the styles that, that, and I don't think you as an individual, you, you, you get to choose that, you know, I'm going to be a servant leader. I'm going to be an, a democratic leader. You just kind of grow with it, right? And, but in fact, yes, he was a servant leader, and there were specific characteristics that he had and traits that made him successful as a servant leader. Number one, he was a great listener. And a listener that practiced something that culturally sometimes we lack, and it's called active listening. You know how many times... You're hearing, but you're already preparing the answer that you're going to come back and say next within the five seconds, but you're, the other person hasn't finished, presented their idea. That's mean you're, better, you're very active. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, we, going back to my collaboration with your universities, I, I, I was preparing, you know, our students here in America and said, watch and observe the Japanese. Practice mm. active, active listening, real active listening. They don't interrupt you. 
and the processing, right? So Mandela, he practiced that active listening, and he, somehow he was able to gather thoughts, gather ideas, gather opinions, and transfer and interpret that better than other leaders. It may sound basic, it may sound like too elementary, but it's actually a skill that you need to develop as a servant leader to be a very good listener, right? And to process that information, to digest that information and to interpret it, uh, you know, so that you can have, you know, better thinking. The other uh, thing that Mandela was known for is his uh, humility, how humble the man was. He was in power. He had all the authority, all the power in the world, yet he never, you know, he never utilized that power, you know, as a way to say, let's do it my way. He was humble enough, and people perceived that and respected that and admired that. And somehow that trait, I call it in a personal trait as a servant leader of being humble, it influenced a culture of white Anglo-South Africans and Afro-South Africans to act and behave and to embrace something that they needed. All of them, just be humble. And let's work as a team. There was a famous soccer match, because you know, Mandela was you know, like sports too, where he was able to you know, bring the national team together. Two different races that have been conflicting for, for decades, right? Cultural differences, political differences, value, you know, different differences. But Mandela being and acting as a humble leader, you know, he was able to influence others. So going back to your comment, Dr. Amir said, you know, if I was to say the professor is never right and never wrong, you know, to me it's, it's a message of being humble in a way, you know. We have gone through training school. We have terminal degrees. We have all these titles and all that. But yet, you know, um, I, I think our students need to perceive also that not only we bring the knowledge and all that, but we are humble individuals that they feel comfortable talking to. That just like Mandela did it, you influence them. You know what? We are equal in that sense. There is no significant difference between power, you know. Mandela was a good choice. Well, I think I can top you. Uh, okay, talk to me. A little, bit, okay. little bit better than, than Mandela. Who do you have? My wife. Okay. She has so far demonstrated the servant leadership, leader traits, which is very difficult to do when you incorporate two different personalities together and try to make it work as a home. She has held her tongue on certain things. I know we're two different people. She have not walked away from me, but she gave me little facial things and eye movements to get me to understand. And she have humbled herself. She have not tried to overshadow me or overtalk me or let me indulge in situations that, um, that causes turmoil or disagreements in the household. So that's who I'm going to hold on to right now because I just told you I got a month anniversary. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that answer. I really do because um, 
when you when you think about academics and you're talking about um, servant leaders, you're not looking beyond the United States. And some of the great servant leaders was abroad. It wasn't they was greater because they had less uh, to go through because Martin Luther King went through a lot. Yeah. So it's just some of the great, it was more abroad than it was here because I guess because of the different culture, the different part of the United States, the different individuals that was actually speaking up in certain decades. So generations had a lot to play with it, had a lot to do with it. Mandela was in prison for years. So yep. it, he paid a lot for what he did too. Uh, the next one. But th there's something else that I want to add, you know, that I think is important when we talk about, you know, the, uh, uh, the traits of a servant leader. Never confuse, you know, being a humble person or, you know, the humility with a weakness. And that's a misunderstanding out there sometimes. Just because you're that's humble, true. you know, like, oh, you're weak, you know, because you're humble. No, I think it's a strength. And, and you have to be able to, you know, uh, articulate that, you know, and, 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 Educate individuals about it. You know, just because you're humble doesn't mean that you're weak. So. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And active leaders. I mean, active listeners that you said. Yeah. I pastored as well. Some of your most effective active listeners are pastors. I would agree. Yeah. They, were, they have to listen to a situation. They have to pray about that situation, and they have to receive information back from the spirit on if it's good, if it's bad, what to say, what not to say, because they can ruin someone's lives. They say the wrong thing. So, pastors, bishops, elders, missionaries, those individuals in that arena um, have a tendency to have uh, be active. Listeners, you also got some of the industries that that's very active speakers too, and don't know when to allow the individual to speak. They speak over you, but that's a different topic. Um, let me stay focused back on yeah, this. We, we can't go deeper <laughs> on that topic. Okay. The next one is spiritual leadership theory. Why do I include spiritual leadership theory? Because one of the my areas of expertise is spirituality in the workplace, and when I mention spiritual leadership theory. I'm not talking about the spiritual leaders of the church. I'm talking about the individual who work in the workplace or the teachers who teach in the workplace that have spiritual beliefs. So you also have these students that come in with different cultural background, different spiritual beliefs. How do you communicate to them with your spiritualness without how can I put this um, embedding upon their privateness? Yeah. Um, um, disrupting their cultural beliefs. I, I, I love this topic. And, and this is a podcast, so we, we have uh, our, our gates are open to, to talk about this and, and, and provide my opinions. Um, so I'm, I'm going to give you a, a bit of my background. So that way you understand, you know, my, my perspective. So uh, I was born and raised in, in Colombia and South America. Very Catholic nation. As a matter of fact, you know, 95% of Colombians are, are Catholic, and so is South America. However, over the last 30 years, since 30-some years, I've been, you know, here, I'm a proud American, too, uh, with Colombian background. 
And it was a transformation as, a, as an individual, as a person, that um, faith was something that I could talk about freely in the classroom and at the workplace. I'm talking about Colombia. Here, mm. you don't talk about it. No. You don't talk about it, right? No, you don't. Uh, and, and you have to be very sensitive. And it's a, a, you know, a topic that, you know, they uh, removed that from the classroom from K to 12, you know, and no longer universities or you have dialogues about faith. But here's the fascinating thing. Last semester, I, uh, I also teach for another university. I teach uh, uh, MBA courses. I had 13 students from 13 different countries. Wow. Nepal, Canada. Uzbekistan, China, Dominican Republic, United States, Dade City, Pasco County, right? <laughs> Those are not states, right? <laughs> That's a big country, right? There is a whole different, a whole different nation there in Dade City. But here's the thing, right? And and if we we had a conversation about spirituality, you know, and faith, and you have Buddhist, you have. Catholics, you have Christian, you have oh, of three Muslims from different nations, you know, in the Middle East. How do we learn from each other's faith and spirituality without crossing the borders of I'm going to impose my religion or make you believe in something that you don't want to believe? But mm. there's something that we can learn, and this is one of the most fascinating conversations we had um, that I have researched about and you know before I introduce these topics you have to be very sensitive but but I think it's important this is the, the type of difficult things that we should be talking about and yes you know yes so somehow here in, in, in the West Western cultures I'm talking about Europe and also the United States our life has been influenced to a great deal by Christianity right and we our life, you know, it's always set on this timer, on this timeline that is called a linear timeline, a, a linear timeline, right? And so by age 30 years old, you may be looking to get married. By the time you're 50, you're halfway through your profession, and 65, you're retired, and you have to ask yourself, have I accomplished all this, these things? Love, relationships, money, achievements, yes, all these things, right? That's a cyclical time what if i was to tell you that when you are 75 years old or 80 years old and you come from a culture like nepal you come from asia they have a value system where time is a cyclical time and you get to enjoy life second and third and three times even so they believe in full reincarnation in full reincarnation. So when you're 75 years old, you're not thinking, oh, like this, back up. when you're 62 years old, you're not thinking about, I'm planning for retirement, or I'm too old to do this, or I'm too old to do this about with my life. No, I'm, listen, I'm only 17 years old. And somehow this race that we have, right, against the clock, we want to make more money. I'm 40 years old, I'm having a midlife crisis, right? I don't have my degree yet. It doesn't happen like that in other cultures. It does not. Same DNA, same human beings, same body, exactly same. You know, we have the same composition, right? We're all creatures of God. We are. 
But in their value system, the way that they see life, the way that they operate, there's something that we can learn from. It is not a race. Yet, sometimes, you know, when speaking to many people, they feel like, I got to get this done. Uh, so we introduce faith and, and have those discussions, and we learn from those things to reflect and to see things in a different way. Right. Is that, that's digging pretty deep. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah, deep. Yeah, I mean, six feet deep. Um, yes. <laughs> the, the next, the last one is authentic leadership theory, in which leaders' behavior is driven by strong, positive values that are consistent in their words and actions. In other words, other words, are you a realist in your classrooms, in your teaching? Or are you false? Fake. Not real. Okay, give, give me give me more meat. You, you have to let's let's elaborate on this. Okay. I, I know the, the Be authentic. Authentic. Are you if you know who you are, and the way that you are attracts people to you, okay. and the way that you teach allows people to learn from it and to benefit from your teaching, if you went into a workforce as a trainer, would you continue to use that method, or would you use the method of that workforce? Now, okay. So if you are real, I'm going to do yeah, a little, so first, I'm gonna do, I'm yeah. do moon slide back to my first part yeah. podcast. Uh-huh. If you know who you are and you are real at home, are you the same real person teaching in a classroom to the students? Are you authentic? You should be authentic, but here's the, the problem that I find with being authentic, okay? And I, I'm going to have to connect the dots between, you know, all my disciplines and all that. I think authenticity, you have to, you know, look inside, you know, deep into, you know, who you are, right? So now let's talk about marketing for a moment, okay? And, and let me connect the dots here. To be real or to be false or to be authentic, you need to understand who you want and what is it that you want the students, your wife, your spouse, your friends, your loved ones, the people that you influence, right? This is leadership. What is it that you want them to see in you and what is the thing that you say, you know, he's authentic about that and I call you own brand. Yes. Your own brand. You know how many times I've done this exercise with friends, family, other professors or professionals and I tell them, Let's do a commercial about you, a 30-second commercial. I, I do it in the classroom, too. What is it that you want the audience to know? Three things about you. What is your brand? Brand Dr. Emerit. What is it? Right? Like, oh, I don't need... So to be authentic, sometimes you don't even know your own brand, right? Mm-hmm. So here's... And I have looked at what I want the world my wife, my children, my students, the loved ones, people that you know me, what is that authenticity or that brand? To me is what I project is, first one is information. And information means intelligence. 
I'm not saying that I'm intelligent. All that I'm saying that I'm an individual that is an information holder. I love to find information and to transfer information. That's my first pillar of my brand and being authentic. I bring to you new knowledge. You may like it, you may not like it, you may debate it, but it's new knowledge that makes you think. First part, right? Being authentic. Second one, I do it with energy and passion. I had a good friend of mine, Dr. Joe Picarero, fantastic leader. He told me once, Andy, here's one thing that you, gotta, you have to know about you know, influencing people. And when you have a presentation and when you talk in public speaking, he says, people would not remember what you said. People would not remember what you did. But people would always remember the way that you made him feel. So that emotional factor, that energy, when you transfer information to the classroom, when you t- you know talking to friends, family, when you're influencing individuals as a leader, there has to be an element of energy that makes people feel good, or makes people cry, or makes people laugh, or makes people you know get angry about something. But you gotta touch that nerve. You see what I'm saying? So going yes. back to the brand, right, of being an authentic leader. Know who you are, right? So, so first one is intelligence information. The second one is, you know, that positive aspect, that energy f- aspect. Wanting to f- feel re-energized is like I'm bringing the I'm bringing the Red Bull. Are you gonna drink it with me, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And the third one is the motivation factor. I love to motivate individuals, and I thrive on seeing right how people rise to the occasion or how people get re-energized, and that fits me. Is that 360-degree process? So, to be an authentic type of leader, to be an individual, you have to first know what is it that you want the world to see in you. How many people don't know that yet? Now I'm gonna throw a curveball in there. Uh, you do. Here's the, the, the breakfast that you're gonna have. You know, <laughs> you, you know, they come off the left field from corporate. <laughs> perspective you have and also in academia academia they call agendas corporate they call them policy and procedures you know who you are but you also have to follow policy and procedures so you get into a situation in that work environment whereas if you decide to be authentic to one individual which caused you to be sympathetic. And then to the next individual, you follow policy and procedures. So to the individual who's looking, who's outside looking, do they perceive you as being authentic or they perceive it as being favoritism? Oh. That, that might have been a knuckle yeah. curve. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but here's, here's the thing that, that comes in mind, you know, to... to to dig deeper into that, you know, that, that question, to that framework of, of situations. Corporate America has policies. You know, um, that's the private industry, universities, colleges, those have policies. And uh, those policies, you know, they're, they're there, right? And we as educators or practitioners in, in the industry, uh, we are not there to break the policy or to make the policy. Sometimes we have to interpret the policy and create something that is called your own judgment. 
about the policy, what you think is based on your experience, based on your moral compass, based on your value system of what you think may be the right thing, the right approach, right? So going back to your question, you know, of being authentic or being, have, dealing with situations of policies or playing favoritism and this and that, we're dealing with a situation right now in the entire system of education that we were not ready for. Nobody. It caught us with, like a better term, the pants were, were down. Were, and it's called artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And here's what's happening, right? We were not ready because, essentially, this is what's happening right now in all colleges and universities. Students can produce better work, better research, than you and I did when we were back in school, right? You and I could not have the algorithms, the resources and technology to produce amazing research and essays that you go and you ask Siri, or you put in the computer, you use ChatGPT, mm-hmm. and bingo, boom, here's my essay, here's my assignment, here's my critical thinking. That's not your critical thinking. That's a robot that is very intelligent. So those policies right now are in place. But here's the conflict that we have. About 60 years ago, 70 years ago, perhaps, there was an invention called the calculator, right? And we were teaching our students back, you know, maybe, you know, more like our, our parents, right, Emmett, back in those days. You need to learn how to add using the paper and the, and, and the pencil, right? Learn the multiplication table. Memorize it, understand it, practice it, because one day you're going to need it. We are at that cross point right now, Dr. Emerit. We're telling the students, oh, you cannot use artificial intelligence. You cannot touch the calculator. Yet it's here to stay. Yet corporate America is using artificial intelligence. It is the calculator of 80 years ago. How do we deal with that situation with policies that says, you know, this is considered unethical to just click on the button transfer information and say I created this thing well you, you see what I'm saying you said we wasn't ready for it we were as a country uh, you know yes, as, as we, an industry yeah, yes yes we were because the military was using robotic when I was in active duty and I, the and industry I minute, is using it and I discharged in 2001 okay I worked for Walmart we were using robotics when I left Walmart in 2017 it's just that the educational field did not grasp the fact that this generation is well beyond the last two generations was going to take this and excel with it. And I think right now they, they can actually put a, a, a person's face on another person's body and you think that that's that person talking. Uh, actually, my, my, my producer... Uh, my my agent, he's pretty good with uh, AI, uh, but that is my face on uh, my Picard. That's no no one else's face. They can make you look prettier. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you, Doctor Andy, for coming on uh, my podcast. Um, as we close this podcast up, anything you want to say in departing? No, I just want to say, you know, thank you, uh, you know, to everyone, to our audience. Uh, we need to have more of these intimate conversations. You know, we need to have more of these moments of uh, reflection, of digging deeper, of asking provocative questions and, and uh, uh, 
I'm going to just use the same tagline that I use with my students, and it has to do with thinking globally and acting locally. We need more of that. Thank you, Dr. Andy, and, uh, and thank you for, for spending time with me. My pleasure. I remember, I remember, remember mentioning last time about the last book that I wrote. I was talking with Dr. Andy about the book, Walking In, and you can see this is the book here. Uh, it's called uh, Leaders Become Leadership, and it's written in uh, English. The first uh, volume is English. The second part is volume is Spanish, and I threw a little bit of French in there, too. So Pretty impressive. Uh, I, I decided to be a uniqueness. It's my wife's idea to use Spanish, and it was the person who was um, writing in Spanish idea to use French. How did I find out? Yeah, the book was written in French. Cause my wife started reading it. I said, "Wait a minute, this is not Spanish." <laughs> so I have two different languages in Volume Two. I have English in Volume One. Once again, thank you for uh, being a part of this podcast. Until we meet again. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you.